Climate change is affecting every person everywhere on the planet. We see devastating impacts now that will worsen if we don't begin to act collectively. Truly, this is an all lives matter moment. But in the US, the lingering unyielding effects of slavery, Jim Crow, and in this case, especially state-directed housing segregation makes the impacts of climate change on black folks exponentially worse. Yes, environmental racism is a thing. On this episode of the Parlay in All Blue, Spelman professor Dr. Nataki Osborne Jelks joins us to help sort through environmental risks and solutions. She also goes into depth about the troubling menace of urban heat islands. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. In addition to her work at Spelman, she is co-founder of the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance. She also serves on the EPA's National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. I hope that you get some good information on this episode. I'm sure you will get a good information. Actually, I hope that it spurs some action or at least just some just some more consideration around what we are doing, our habits and behaviors as it comes to the environment. And we've got to really work to undo systemic racism. We just have to work on it. It just has to be done. So anyway, without further ado, next on the Parlay in All Blue is Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelts. Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for your time in doing this. And I am looking forward to it because I, I think that, um, it, listen, there, there's, there's always a lot of problems to, to be solved. But I think the problem of the environment and climate is one that really is one that's, that's upon us. And we need a lot more information on it. We need a lot more tools and a lot more understanding so hopefully today in our conversation, we can give the audience, our audience, some of that to, to learn how to get involved and just how things are, what's working and what's not working and what we can do more of and less of and all of those things. So we really appreciate you. The, the one thing that where I want to start is a little bit narrow and move out, but we know that segregation, which legally has ended, you know, sort of 50 some odd years ago in terms of access to public accommodations and housing and education and voting rights and, and other things. But there are remnants of segregation, especially around the way uh, where we live and redlining or what have you, that has impacts on all of those things, healthcare access to transportation, food deserts, and so many things. Are there lingering effects from segregation in terms of the environment? So I, I think you, um, you're you raising a great point, and it's no different than everything that you've just listed. As we think about you know, the impacts of redlining, um, the impacts of these policies that have you know, shaped a lot of modern cities, and even small towns in terms of the ways that planning has happened, even though those policies are outdated, they have been outlawed, and we still suffer those effects. And the environment is one key example. 
So when we look at the amenities that are in communities, whether we're talking about things like sidewalks, you know, basic infrastructure in our communities, when we think about investments that have been made in things like parks and green space, and this is also a part of the critical community infrastructure that helps to, you know, cool our communities, helps, you know, when we have things like parks and green space and trees, they help to, you know, filter our air of pollutants. They help to, you know, filter our water of pollutants as well. And you don't find um, in many cases significant investments in these historically red-nine communities in this type of critical community infrastructure. Also, when we think about, you know, where you tend to see um, perhaps many of the factories or polluting industries, in some cases, in many cities, it ends up in those places, you know, where the communities have been historically impacted by policies like redlining. So unfortunately, there is a significant impact that these policies that have been, you know, that have been um, done away with long ago, they continue to have this indelible imprint, you know, on our environment and our quality of life today. So I'm not pushing back on that, but I am trying to, I do want to ask a little more. So, but when you think of climate or when some people may think of climate, it's something that it just affects everybody. So when we don't have enough trees or what have you, you know, that that affects everybody. I mean, how is this, what are some of the ways that it ends up showing up? Some of those disparities that you talked about in terms of the trees or what have you, what's the impact of that? What does that look like when it's when when it's not working? So first, let me just say that when I think about climate change, I really like to say that we are all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. So while climate change does impact everyone, there are certain communities that are disproportionately impacted. And so racialized policies and planning practices, you know, things like redlining that we've just talked about are, you know, implicit in these disproportionate impacts. When we think about, you know, who is most, you know, who lives in closest proximity to polluting industries, So we can look at that from both a climate change perspective as well as a health perspective. You know, what's driving climate change when we talk about, you know, our carbon footprint, when we talk about uh, increases in atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide, you know, from industry, from, you know, the cars and vehicles that we drive in, you know, the areas that are in closest proximity to the highways and transportation corridors. Again, we're talking about in many cases, communities communities of color, low-income communities. When I think about the Atlanta metropolitan area, and it's not just in Atlanta, you know, Black communities have been really disrupted for the building of roads and highways. And so not only are we talking about disruption of these communities, um, we're looking at the potential health impacts that are associated with our exposure to different types of air pollutants, but we're also looking at how all of that is helping to drive climate change. So when communities are disproportionately impacted by exposure to pollution, you also talked earlier about the fact that, you know, we can look at things like food deserts, access to health care. We can look at these same areas and see a multitude of issues and challenges. And these are the things that just exacerbate conditions in these communities. And, you know, it makes climate change sort of this multiplier effect that can impact communities in a myriad of ways, but at its core, 
you know, these are things that impact our quality of life, the quality of our environment. And if we see our environment as a critical ingredient um, to, you know, communities living healthy lives, then we can quickly see that those connections are there. And when communities have been disproportionately impacted by environmental hazards and stressors and are also uh, dealing with a lack of positive amenities and things that can help to offset um, those hazards and stressors, then it's it's double jeopardy, if you will. So when uh, I want to uh, wrap a little bit around, uh, wrap my arms a little bit around the pollution aspect of it, I was reading, and I don't know what the actual statistics are, but somewhere I read where Black children suffer more from asthma than white children. Is that a genetic thing or is that something to do with the environment? So none of this is genetic. When we look at a number of health disparities, especially those that can be associated with exposure to environmental contaminants and pollutants, we're not talking about things that you know, are genetic. And my mentor, Dr. Fatima Shafi, who is um, also a professor at Spelman College and an environmental justice scholar, always says that vulnerability is not in our DNA. Meaning that, you know, when we look at communities of color, when we look oftentimes at low-income communities, we see these disparities with respect to a lot of different health issues, uh, conditions, illnesses, diseases, etc., and we cannot just, you know, say that, you know, it's it's just those, you know, it just happens to this group of people. It's in their DNA. They have these populations, our communities have been made to be vulnerable because of, you know, the close proximity that we oftentimes are in to these pollution sources. You know, communities of color in Atlanta is, is no different from a lot of other cities. Uh, communities of color are more inundated with exposure to environmental hazards and stressors than other communities are. Communities of color, low-income communities. Um, there was a study, it's it's a little bit dated now, but well, I say dated just because it was, you know, about 10 years ago when this study was released, but I don't think that there has been significant change. But there was a study called the Patterns of Pollution, uh, which looked at demographics and pollution sources in metropolitan Atlanta. And they looked at a 14-county a 14-county um, study area, if you will, um, for the metropolitan Atlanta area. In, in, in that 14 counties, they found 52 environmental justice hotspots, meaning locations where you had multiple pollution sources, but you also had an overlay of social vulnerability in those communities. So communities of color, low-income communities, language-isolated communities, living in closest proximity to these multiple pollution sources. So data like that, you know, tells us that, you know, vulnerability is not, you know, in our DNA, it's not genetic, but it is for things like asthma, the fact that Black kids and other children of color are living in closest proximity in many cases to to highways, to high traffic arteries. We are oftentimes living in closest proximity to industries that release pollutants into the air. Sometimes we have to even look at the quality of our housing. You know, if we're living in older housing stock, you know, for instance, with lead-based paint in it, there may be, you know, other issues, you know, in those homes. These are the types of things that tend to impact our children because we know that in the United States, race is highly correlated with income level 
And when you kind of put those two things together, again, you it, it sort of yields communities being disproportionately impacted, disproportionately affected, and we end up seeing more challenges with health issues in those populations. You, you use the term environmental justice. What is environmental justice? So there's kind of a textbook definition of environmental justice, which, you know, the EPA talks about the fair treatment, you know, of all communities with respect to the development, um, the enforcement and implementation of environmental policies, you know, laws and regulations. And this idea that no group of people should have to shoulder a disproportionate burden because of, you know, a country or city or town uh, or counties you know, domestic and or foreign policies. And so just quite simply from the perspective of, you know, people who live in communities, you know, who are impacted by environmental injustices, we're just talking about the fact that everybody has the right to clean water, clean air, healthy foods, healthy homes, workplaces that don't put their health at risk. And everybody should be afforded that regardless of race, regardless of class or income, regardless of, you know, gender or any of the other kind of social factors or characteristics that we can use to, you know, sort of divide groups. So you, you mentioned water just then, uh, and it made me think of something. Is, is Flint, is that a part of climate and environment, the, the, the water, the layer crisis that they had in Flint, is that uh, that we had? Is that a part of environmental justice? Absolutely. Well, it, it's a it's a it's a, uh, an example of environmental injustice, I would say, in terms of what has been done in Flint, and really, quite honestly, the struggle that people are still going through to get those lead service lines replaced, um, to make sure that people have access to affordable, clean drinking water. You know, people should not have to be using bottled water, which isn't regulated, by the way. They shouldn't have to use bottled water to just take care of their household needs. You know, simple things like cooking and brushing your teeth. They shouldn't have to worry about exposure to lead in drinking water. And so what happened in Flint is an American tragedy and definitely um, just a shining example, if ever there was one, of environmental injustice. So when we talk about environmental justice, it's about making sure that people, to the extent possible in Flint, are, are made whole, that these lead service lines are replaced, that you know people get assistance that they need in terms of addressing health issues and concerns. There's a lot of work that still needs to happen in Flint. And unfortunately, there were policies that were deemed to be um, policies around finance. But, you know, what started off as a way to, you know, save money from the perspective of the city. And I would say the emergency manager who was put in place in the city turned out to be something that impacted, you know, health and quality of life in the most egregious way possible. Yeah. You know, and that thing with uh, water, it's also happening in two places or or their concerns about lead in two places that are close to me, my hometown of Chicago and the place of my education, Jackson, Mississippi, has some serious water and lead piping issues that haven't been corrected or being slowly, too slowly corrected. So I, I think it's it's one of those things of whenever I listen to something and you see it's in Flint. Now it's, it's it, Flint may just be first, you know, it's, there's something that could be anywhere. 
Absolutely. And there was Washington, D.C., you know, before Flint. And, you know, we could talk about challenges, you know, and, and it may, you know, in some cases the pollutant might be different. You know, maybe it's not always lead, maybe it's, you know, chromium-6 or something else. But we can even look to our Native American brothers and sisters who have been fighting with respect to, you know, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, et cetera. So there is unfortunately no shortage of these stories. Yeah. Now, so speaking of stories, where I came across your work, uh, certainly, and it was something, again, that I, that wasn't intuitive to me, is that there's certain parts of Atlanta that are hotter than others. Atlanta's hot. I thought we'd live in hot land. It's hot everywhere. <laughs> so, again, I want to take you back to this, you know, with respect to things like extreme heat, you know, we're all suffering. And I think, you know, we even saw this this past summer, the summer of 2021, that from the Pacific Northwest to the Northeast, you know, to in the Deep South, you know, um, in the New Orleans area, we saw these extremely high temperatures. And, you know, really in Atlanta, it was a somewhat of a milder summer than we've seen in some recent years. But when we look at projections around the, you know, leading climate hazards and what we are to expect based on the modeling that has been done, increased heat, increased temperature is going to be one of those things that we are going to continue to deal with. And even though, you know, Atlanta already has this nickname of, you know, hot Atlanta for a number of reasons, we might see that really, we'll see some more emphasis on that um, because of where it is that we're heading if we're not taking action, you know, to slow that down and to reverse that trend. But I am a co-lead of um, of a project called Urban Heat ATL. And Urban Heat ATL is an effort in which students and community sciences are mapping temperatures across Atlanta. So we're trying to map really urban heat islands. The urban heat island effect is something that, you know, take any major city, any place where there is a lot of concrete and surfaces that are going to attract and, you know, um, sort of, you know, kind of heat in place. You're going to have hotter temperatures than you might have in, say, suburban spaces that may have more tree canopy, may not be as built up as as some of these other spaces. And, and it's really interesting in Atlanta because we're known as this city in a forest, Right. Although that tree canopy is threatened by development, we still, you know, have some significant, you know, tracts of tree canopy in our urban spaces. But the reality is not all communities and spaces were created equal. So we don't have the trees and vegetation, parks and green spaces in every part of the city. When we look at some of those, again, historically redlined neighborhoods, we see some higher temperatures, not just in Atlanta, but in other parts of the country as well. So this project is all about us helping to document some of the things that we kind of, you know, we have a sense of it. We know it. We know that it's happening in, in other cities. And we know that, you know, anecdotally, we know it's happening here in Atlanta as well. But the first step or one of the first steps in us really being able to push for actionable change is to get the data that backs up, you know, what it is that we know and what it is that people are experiencing in their homes and in communities. So in this project, we are using low-cost handheld sensors, and we also have a small network of stationary sensors that is helping us 
that are helping us to capture this data so that we can understand even the small changes that might be occurring across different neighborhoods within the city and help us really to identify those areas where we have the most challenges and to to not only focus on what those challenges are, but then to move to a place in which we are also engaging students and community members and other stakeholders in developing what the solutions uh, can and should be. So so before we, before we get to some of what maybe potential solutions are, can you give me an idea of what, what the data is showing? I mean, is it like if it's 90 degrees, is it 91 degrees in another neighborhood? Or what are we talking about from terms of data? So good question. And we haven't done a full analysis of the data yet. Um, We have been in the data collection phase of the project for a little less than a year now. So the data is telling us some things that we would expect, you know, areas that, you know, have more concrete, you know, we're seeing higher temperatures in the areas that, you know, have more tree canopy. So we're seeing some of those basic things. But because we're using these handheld sensors and people are walking routes throughout the city, they may be biking, we're starting to be able to see some even small changes as we're crossing neighborhood boundaries that help us to, you know, then um, it, it really takes us back to a point of asking more questions, right? So, you know, what is the tree, what does the tree canopy cover look like? You know, what are the characteristics of, you know, these communities where we're seeing the higher temperatures? And we do ask our student and community scientists to, you know, help us collect some of that, you know, data around, you know, site conditions. Not everybody, you know, does it every time they submit their data, but sometimes we're able to get a sense of, you know, what things look like, get photographs, you know, of the area in addition to the data that help us to begin to piece things together. So I would say that we are seeing some things that we expect, but there's still a lot more questions. One thing that we will hopefully in the near future be able to look at that we haven't fully looked at yet is what what's happening in terms of nighttime temperatures. That is where, you know, we definitely have a lot of concerns around the impacts on health, especially on populations that might already be vulnerable, you know, the elderly, those living on fixed income, those who don't have access to central air, what's happening during the night that might be exacerbating conditions for those folks. And so we, um, For the nighttime temperatures, we do have a small network of stationary sensors that uh, is now fully built out. And we started that work a little bit later than the work with the handheld mobile sensors. And so once we begin to look at that data, that will tell us, tell us, you know, some things as well that we can't, we just can't get from the the mobile sensors because, you know, the mobile sensors are only going where people take them uh, at the times that they take them. And the continuous monitoring uh, will be coming from these stationary sensors. What, what's the tree canopy? What is that? Tree canopy, well, we're talking about um, really, um, you know, when you have trees, the canopy, if you think about how those trees, you know, how the branches reach out, and help to shade, you know, our communities, help to shade our homes. So where you're under the cover of that canopy, you know, if you will, um, when those trees are in, uh, you know, kind of in full bloom. Yep. And and, and you said that you, you co-led this. Who else was in? And you mentioned students, students from Spelman, I'm assuming. We have students from two institutions, Spelman College, um, as well as the Georgia Institute of Technology. The co-academic co-lead at Georgia Tech is Dr. Kim Cobb, who is a climate scientist um, at Tech. 
there are some other um, professors and researchers at Tech who are um, taking on some significant you know, parts of the project as well. Dr. Jairo Garcia is one as well. And then we have uh, community-based organizations like the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, as well as the City of Atlanta's Office of Resilience is a key partner and a group called the Partnership for Southern Equity. And there are a number of partners. I'll get in trouble if I keep trying to name them all, right, but those are right. some of the key ones. Yeah, I got you. I got you. I, I want to go back to something really quick, though, on the on the pollutants. COVID is a virus that attacks the lungs, right? And so a lot has been made up, and it's, it's easy to trace in terms of when we start talking about essential workers. They've been also the people who've been most vulnerable because of the types of jobs and not being able to work from home or what have you. But, and there may not be any data on this yet, but as I've said here and thinking through it, if COVID is attacking the lungs and I already live in an area where there are a lot of pollutants, I'm in double trouble then, right? You're absolutely right. And there actually is some data uh, already. There was a study, I want to say one of the first studies may have come out in 2020. Don't quote me on that, but definitely by 2021, that was conducted by some researchers at Harvard. And that study actually shows that when people are living in communities where they have been consistently exposed to particulate matter, uh, especially fine, you know, fine particles that come from the combustion of fossil fuels and other other activities that these are the communities, you know, these communities that have been most exposed to this, you know, consistent pollution are suffering more severe consequences with with respect to COVID and increased risk of death from COVID. So talk about, you know, again, this multiplier effect. You know, we could kind of talk about COVID-19 in a similar fashion as we talk about climate change in terms of this multiplier effect you know, on these communities that have already been made to be vulnerable based on their exposure to a number of different environmental hazards and stressors and, you know, the income inequalities and all the other, you know, factors that impact, you know, um, our communities. Got you. So in preparing for this episode, there were a couple of things that have ran across. One is Marvin Gaye was trying to tell us this in, in Mercy, Mercy Me in the ecology. And I mean that in all sincerity. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I think that's 1971, 72, really pointing out to us. But then there's something else in the 70s that we kind of take as normal or or we, we normalize. But Fat Albert and his gang played in the dump, right? They didn't play in the park. They played in the dump. You know, I mean, it's and it's kind of you wake up and watch that, or at least I did, you know, watch it every Saturday morning. But that that was a climate disaster. Fat Albert, Fat Albert, fat, fast forward probably has some serious respiratory issues. Hmm. You know, I never thought about that at all. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You are so right. Hadn't thought about that in that way. And, you know, Mercy, Mercy Me is slightly before my time, not much, but a little bit before my time. But I know the song and um, have been really taken, you know, by those lyrics and, you know, by that truth telling, you know, back then. And we're still dealing with all of those issues today. And that's really unfortunate. But, yeah, Fat Albert and and the Cosby Kids, um, they... (laughs) 
were also, I mean, really an example of, you know, what we see and experience in our communities. And it hasn't changed that much since the 70s in some places. Yeah. And, you, you know, listen, um, and when I think about in all seriousness, they, they were playing in the dump. But, you know, a lot of good neighborhoods have parks and lots of what I now know the term would be tree canopy or what have you. That also ties into things like being able to exercise and keep weight off you and all of those just being able to be outside. I mean, there's so much that's there. I, I do want to bring you back to Fat Albert and we're going to play. We are going to to give you the keys to the kingdom for a minute. And I know that you're a member of the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council and other things, so you do have a voice. But we just had a big infrastructure bill signed through the Biden administration. And let's take you back to or take you to Fat Albert's organization and from an infrastructure or planning perspective as somebody who's in this space what would be some things that you would say infrastructure we should do to get that neighborhood to where it's more climate resilient? Mm, so you you testing my knowledge of Fat Albert now? Um, no, well, no. So it could be Fat. It could be. It could be. It could be there. It could be Compton. It could be any place. I'm just saying. What? So we we talked about the redlining has created certain types of environments, right? So we get that part, less tree canopy, more concrete or what have you, highways crisscrossing, creating, you know, more pollutants and carbon, the carbon footprint. So all of that's there. And because we have an opportunity of really a generational opportunity with the infrastructure bill, what would be some things from a climate perspective that we should use to invest in those communities to make them more climate resilient? Great question. Um, And and so, and some of it does tie back to some of the things that we have been discussing already. You know, every community has its own challenges. And so what I would say just to start off with is that, you know, it's all contextual. What's most needed in your community or X community? Obviously, when we think about a place like Flint, we're talking about replacement of those lead service lines so that people can, again, access clean and affordable water. In some other places, uh, even, you know, Atlanta, you know, we could even put on this list, we need some upgrades in terms of our stormwater uh, infrastructure, um, as well as sewage or wastewater infrastructure. In places like some of the west side of Atlanta, when there are heavy rain events and we anticipate even more heavy rain events and increased precipitation as a result of climate change, But some communities get flooded out and inundated with raw, untreated sewage mixed with stormwater. Stormwater is the water that is generated when it rains. And stormwater carries its own set of pollutants. As it flows over our landscapes, it's picking up trash and debris and petroleum products and pet waste and whatever is there. Um, So you have this raw, untreated sewage mixed with stormwater flowing into our creeks and streams. And in Atlanta... Creeks and streams sometimes flow through our front yards, backyards, school grounds, public parks, et cetera. And so um, we've got, you know, this old, you know, infrastructure that dates back to the late 1800s that needs to be upgraded. There isn't much of an appetite for sort of, you know, further disruption of our communities in terms of digging up, you know, all of those pipes necessarily. But there are things like green stormwater infrastructure that can be now implemented to augment um, and to take some of the capacity off 
of our sewer systems and things like this uh, green stormwater infrastructure help us to replace what we call the gray hard infrastructure with plants and trees and, you know, soils that help to soak up water and and keep our communities from being flooded and those types of things. So investing in that water and stormwater infrastructure is really important as well. In some places, it's, you know, about back to the basics, things like sidewalks. If our communities were more walkable, then that could decrease our dependence, you know, on the vehicle. If there was more money put into our public transportation infrastructure, especially in the places where there are a lot of jobs. And we tend to have that mismatch between people who need public transportation and then being able to get to the places where those jobs are. So making sure that we have investments there, you know, are all things that can help us to change our behaviors in terms of, you know, just driving so much if we had those alternative modes of transportation accessible to us. Yeah. Thank you for that. What? How did you come to this work? What's your journey to this work? My journey to this work, it, it really, um, you know, if I kind of dig, I might say that, you know, I was a Girl Scout starting out as an elementary school student. And so, you know, I, I was connected, you know, to nature and the natural world. And I went camping and, you know, those types of things. But when it really became something very real to me, was after living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I lived in Baton Rouge um, for just five years. But in this kind of five-year stint uh, of living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and what some people call the Cantor Alley Corridor, my reflections on that time really have changed the trajectory um, you know, of, of my life, definitely in terms of um, the professional work that I do. And after living in Baton Rouge, and, and Cancer Alley, if you will, is this 85-mile stretch between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, which houses over 100 or so chemical companies, petrochemical companies, and other pollution-generating facilities. In some cases, people, you know, literally uh, literally live along the fence lines, you know, of these companies that oftentimes, you know, are polluting our environment. And I can remember, you know, the water always smelling and tasting bad. Uh, the pollution index was always high. The air smelled bad. You know, at night, if you were traveling anywhere in close proximity to these facilities, you saw you know, the smoke billowing, you know, from these facilities, you know, churning out nasty, you know, soot, toxic soot. And, you know, you have, when we talk about health disparities, when we talk about cancer, birth defects, miscarriages, and other chronic conditions that can be associated with living in polluted, heavily in polluted environments, that's what, what, what we have in places like Baton Rouge. So really that awareness, you know, for me, and then, you know, some personal things that happened. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, after we lived there. Not that we can link her diagnosis to what we may have been exposed to in any sort of definitive way. But just really the fact that that possibility existed gave me the impetus to want to study these issues and not just study them, to try to do something about them, uh, to work with communities, to try to address when there is this disproportionate exposure to environmental hazards, you know, how do we change that? And how do we get community members involved in collecting that data to prove what's happening? So, you know, that experience, along with getting a chance to, you know, have internships with agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency and working in 
places like the Superfund Hazardous Waste Site Division, where, you know, I worked with other communities like the community that I grew up in that, you know, let me know that there was, you know, a serious problem and issue, you know, happening across many communities. And I felt compelled to get involved. Yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. And, you know, for anybody who's listening, uh, just just Google Cancer Alley. It's really frightening when you when you think about it and it's right there. And um, you can also see similar things happening in Africatown and in Mobile. And there's a book and I've mentioned this a couple of times for people who listen to the show called Deep Roots. And it says that you can pretty much, if you can go by where the soil was the blackest and it had the highest cotton production, which means it also had the highest number of enslaved people, then you are also going to find today the largest racial disparities. And so part of Cancer Alley is uh, I think it's St. John's Parish or what have you, where the Whitney Plantation is, which, you know, is a good, great place to visit. Africa Town was literally, you know, sort of the uh, maroon area in the United States where post bondage after emancipation, people developed their own community. You will see a lot of, you know, the the the, the dumping and, and uh, landfills and all of those things. So that that point around history is really important in understanding a lot about environment and I, and I have to to be honest with you that that me mark I'm talking about right now did not I took a lot of environmental stuff as like you said everybody's in the same storm but I didn't realize that we were in different boats until you know yesterday I mean this is a new thing for me so I appreciate you you sharing that one one thing that I do want to to ask and and I mean this respectfully I'm going to just put it in context when I see Greta Thornburg who's a young person I think she may be 18 now she's still a teenager I know that and you know I see her speaking at Davos and I see her speaking at the UN and what have you and that's great because that means she's bringing people into the conversation and especially if she's bringing young people into the conversation and it's global and that's a great thing but a lot of times I don't see enough black voices in there. Who are some black voices and organizations that are involved in this work? So let me just say, you know, and I, I completely, you know, understand your question. There are a number of black voices. They aren't always necessarily elevated, but I'll just mention a few. So Dr. Uh, Doctors uh, Robert Bullard, who is uh, at Texas Southern University, Dr. Beverly Wright, who is the executive director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice out of New Orleans, they collectively came together to found the HBCU, Historically Black College and University Climate Change Consortium, which is a consortium of historically Black colleges mostly located in the South that are working to um, address climate change issues, train students. They are advancing research on climate and climate justice issues, There are folks like um, uh, Donnell Wilkins uh, in Detroit, Michigan, with the Green Door Initiative, who is doing amazing work. She also was one of the founders and former executive director of uh, Detroiters Working for Environmental Justice. So she's got this long history and legacy, if you will, of this work. And I know that you and I are both in Georgia. So Dr. Marshall Shepard, 
who is a leading climate scientist who is located at University of Georgia. Definitely somebody you should talk to. He really approaches it, you know, from the perspective of, you know, kind of meteorology, atmospheric science. Definitely a great person to talk to. Dr. Nikki Sheets, who is uh, in New Jersey and actually helped New Jersey to pass a policy that is focused on looking at these cumulative impacts that I talked about that communities of color face in the context of climate change. Dr. Fatima Shafi, I'll lift her name up again, who is an environmental justice scholar. And um, I could go on and on and on. Many of these have been associated with some of our HBCUs or with community-based environmental justice uh, organizations. And um, those voices are out there. No, I'm, I'm glad that you're saying that because, uh, listen, I will say this, that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's all of Black life. It's, it's, it's not just the, the things that are in the criminal justice. So I'm happy to hear those voices and especially the HBCUs involved with it. But you've mentioned a couple of times Wawa. And I, and I want to say that's your organization or you're heavily involved in it, right? I'm heavily involved in it. Uh, one of the co-founders of the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, uh, otherwise known as Wawa. And um, we're a community-based organization that works primarily on the west side of Atlanta, both in northwest and southwest Atlanta. We do our work on a watershed basis. So we're talking, when I talk about watersheds in our context, we're talking about um, there are three creeks that run through West Atlanta communities. Um, Proctor Creek, uh, which is uh, on the northwest side of town. The Atlanta University Center is a part of the Proctor Creek watershed. When we think about, you know, for those who are in Atlanta, some of our, uh, the the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, that's in the Proctor Creek watershed. Um, The Utoy Creek watershed is sort of southwest Atlanta, you know, Cascade area. And the Sandy Creek watershed is a smaller watershed kind of nestled in between the two also, um, you know, spanning both uh, uh, mostly Northwest Atlanta, actually. And so we, you know, got started over 20 years ago because essentially community members were concerned in Southwest Atlanta about the placement of a mini sewage treatment plant in a community park without community engagement. Those community elders were able to stop that project from happening. And then we decided that it was important to start an organization that would not only try to address these negative projects, but that would also try to put forward a positive vision for making our communities cleaner, greener, healthier, and more sustainable. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And thank you for that. And I also want to give a shout out to a group, and I don't know the name, um, an activist group that prevented a recycling, a sort of landfill um a recycling plant being located in their neighborhood in uh in Stonecrest. And that's they've been doing that over the past year or so. So you have to really be active and, and fight it. But I mean, you are a professor and clearly aligned with other organizations in doing this work. If you were talking to someone entering college or somebody leaving college and they wanted to get into this work, I mean, what would be the sort of preparation, the path of preparation to, to, to do this work? The path, I think there are many paths, uh, paths of preparation to this work. Um, definitely for someone entering college, I might suggest, you know, majoring in something like environmental science, or it doesn't have to be just environmental science. There are many different ways that you can approach it, you know, political science, environmental studies, even sociology and anthropology, you know, so um, it's kind of cross-cutting when we look at, you know, these issues. They're definitely science is at the core, 
but environmental issues are all interdisciplinary. So um, you can approach it from a, a number of different vantage points. Whether they are leaving college, in college, or even wanting to do something, you know, just do something different later on in life, I would suggest getting engaged in a local community-based environmental organization where one can get, you know, hands-on experience working at the grassroots community level, working on the science issues, working on the policy issues, working to educate and engage community members in the issues, um, but also as a way to learn from community members. What I find and have found in my work is that when people have lived experience, you know, living next door to that, you know, waste facility or living in a community that's impacted by air pollution or water pollution, then, you know, there are ways of knowing that people, you know, begin to understand how they might be being impacted and they're able to identify where some of the exposures might even be happening. There's a lot that we can also learn from, you know, communities who are impacted. And so I would say get involved, find an organization that is doing the work and that will give you, I think, the education of a lifetime. Yeah. And and listen, I would say that getting involved, even when it's not, quote unquote, your community is really important. And by community, I'm I'm narrowing it down to like zip code or, you know, where you're located, because that that problem with where landfills are located and our behaviors is global. Again, in preparing for this, I came across that so many clothes from America and Europe end up in landfills in Ghana, where they have a tremendous problem developing there that, you know, the clothes that we think we're giving away or whatever it is, they end up in places in West Africa and landfills and they're overrunning. And that, 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 that was really, it's really telling that I think we really have to also really, yeah, we have to think locally and act locally, but we really got to think about the broader impact of of black people, people of color and just what we're doing because it's 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 a global phenomenon of putting of of putting trash in black people's neighborhood just just to just to say it plainly. I mean, even in West Africa where you would think, okay, we're going to the motherland and it's pure all our clothes are ending up there. Anyway, I'm on a rant. I'll stop. I'll no, myself. I hear you. I hear you. It, it's it's about our consumption patterns, but also about, you know, how we dispose of, you know, as opposed to giving it away or recycling or all of those things. And I try to remind my my family members, anytime I see something, you know, kind of in the trash can that could be recycled, yeah. you know, I remind them that, you know, this stuff ends up in black communities. So, you know, we have to go in a different direction. There we go. All right. Well, I appreciate that. And as we wrap up, we ask everyone on the uh, Parlay and All Blue, what does it mean to live well? To live well, I, I think it means um, just having access to whatever it is that people need to live healthy, whole, fulfilled lives. That could be, you know, access to resources, peace of mind, not having, you know, stress associated with, you know, just everyday tasks that we have to carry out. It means having a legacy to pass on to future generations. It, it can mean, I think, a lot to, to different people. But for me, you know, that's, that's at the core. It's, it's about, you know, family, that connection to family and being able to to share, you know, share with family in a way 
that I feel like I'm talking in circles here, but um, you know, you hit me, you 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 hit me with this question um, that I, I should be able to, you know, kind of articulate very well. But you know, when I think about, you know, just kind of what it is that that I'm doing, it's all about having a brighter future, you know, for those future generations. And so for me, it's making that contribution so that, you know, my son and other family members don't have the same struggles and challenges that our current generations are dealing with. It's it's all about making things better. Awesome. All right. And then so we will. Uh, and, and no, you weren't talking in circles. You were talking from the heart. So we, we appreciate that. That's, that's the whole thing. We want to hear, you know, what it means to live well. So thank you for that. Now, you you have spent time in a lot of HBCU communities. Uh, I think growing up in, in what what was what were they or where where were they? The main HBCU communities that I grew up uh, in were um, Kentucky State University in Frankfort, Kentucky, yeah. uh, Southern University, uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Also, you know, as a child, I um, actually spent time in the Atlanta University Center as well. My my father went to Atlanta University, and then um, I came to Spelman College um, for my undergraduate training as well. So I've spent the longest time in Atlanta around the AUC. And so, you know, that's kind of where my heart is. But definitely that time at Southern University, you know, as a child growing up, that was, I would say, one of the best times of my life um, to get exposed to the food, the culture, you know, the bands, all of that. Um, I will never forget. And and that's what I draw on a lot in terms of, you know, kind of an HBCU experience. Well, you know what, Doctor Osborne Jones, we might have to we might have to edit this whole last part out. So, so I'm gonna tell you, listen, <laughs> as somebody as a as 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 a bleeding blue Jackson State Tiger, I gotta I, I hear you on the food and and I hear you on a lot of the things and the band is I, right, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, shout out Southern, shout out Baton Rouge, shout out Scotlandville, and Scotlandville <laughs> Magnet. I went there. Uh, I oh, went really? to okay. Scotlandville Magnet. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now I will say. Now I can't. I can't let my parents listen to this without also missing uh, talking about Mississippi Valley State University. Oh, Both yeah. of my parents are graduates of Valley. They actually oh, really? still teach there. Yes. And uh, my mother actually got her doctorate from Jackson State University. So go Tigers, too. (laughs) All right. All right. Okay. well, so you redeemed yourself there at the end. But listen, we really appreciate that. And and I just want to leave the listening audience with this. And this is just my own journey is that I had an opportunity a few years ago to be involved in some nonprofit stuff. And then somebody said, well, well, here's an environmental group. And I I thought, no, I I really want to be involved in something, quote unquote, black. What I'm realizing now is that there's not a table that where we don't need to have people. Let me say that. But particularly in this environmental space, we really need we need to double down. We need to double down on the activism, the people like yourself with the skill and the tools to do it. Like you mentioned, uh, even politics or what have you. It's so urban planning. This environmental thing is really, really important. And so thank you again for for joining us. We really appreciate it. And all the best to you and the work that you're doing uh, with students at Spelman and at Wawa and, and all of the other places. So we really appreciate you. Thank you so much.
All right. For the rest of you all, I'm going to say bye, and we will see you on the uh, outro. Thanks, and thank you for listening to another episode of The Parlay in All Blue. We appreciate you here at The Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find The Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Market G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.